In early June of 1903, there was the general textile strike in Philly. Mother Jones arrived in the city later in June and, as usual, started agitating and giving speeches and very quickly picked up on the fact that there were a huge amount of very young children working in these textile mills. I thought it was more than ironic that his first hit uh, the Banana Boat song, what many of us know to be uh, Gale, uh, is a song about dock workers uh, loading bananas. They had banners demanding, we want to go to school and not the mines, and held rallies each night in a new town. This was the famous March of the Mill Children in June 1903, led by none other than Mother Jones. It went from Kensington, Philadelphia, to President Theodore Roosevelt's summer White House in Oyster Bay, New York. We've got a report from the Labor John podcast. Harry Belafonte, who died recently, was not only an acclaimed actor and singer, but an important fighter against racism and militarism. Workweek Radio Steve Zeltzer talks with Clarence Thomas, retired secretary-treasurer of Local 10 of the ILWU, the International Longshore Workers' Union, which had a long-standing connection to Belafonte. And on Labor History in 2... The year was 1971. At 2.51 a.m., Battalion 12 Chief Leo Najarian of Los Angeles heard that there had been a tunnel explosion. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Hello, and welcome to the Labor John Podcast, where we actually call our mothers, and not just on Mother's Day, about the working class history of Philadelphia and the surrounding world. I'm Sam James, and I am joined by... I am Gabriel Christie. Are we going to learn about Mother Jones today? We are going to learn about Mother Jones and the March of the Mill Children. In early June of 1903, there was the general textile strike in Philly, where about 100,000 textile workers in the city went on strike for the 55-hour week. So they had been currently working the 60-hour week. They wanted to take that down to 55. But... Mother Jones arrived in the city later in June and, as usual, started agitating and giving speeches and very quickly picked up on the fact that there were a huge amount of very young children working in these textile mills. So according to the 1900 census, approximately one-sixth of all children under the age of 16 worked in mills and factories, and conditions in the mills were just absolutely awful. And that's one of the things Mother Jones picked up on really quickly. And she would actually have kids like come up on stage or have kids who had lost limbs or fingers come up on stage with her to present their injury to the whole crowd and just remind them like, this is who you're fighting for. So she wanted to organize an army of workers to march up to New York City to raise awareness about the plight of the mill children. So she figured that because she had connections in every industrial town between Philly and New York, 
that they could go from like city to city and get fed and housed as they moved up. And that she would also do this to raise funds for the strike fund because the textile union in Philly had grown exponentially during the strike. So they needed money. Uh, and so she was going to go and raise funds along the way and send yeah. them all back. So July 7th, 1903 started with speeches at the Kensington Labor Lyceum at 2nd and Cambria Streets. They were making final preparations and ag- and doing more agitation uh, to get ready to march to New York City. Okay. And they also declared that they might call upon President Roosevelt, who was currently summering at his home in Oyster Bay. Ooh. Failing that, they said that they would just hold mass meetings at Madison Square Garden to raise funds. So around noon on July 7th, 150 men and 50 boys and girls, all from the textile workers, uh, marched out of the Lyceum, moving up to Frankfurt Avenue. And then they were... So at the head of the procession, they had all of their union banners and all of their picket signs and everything that they had been making over the past month or so of striking. And then behind them, there was a, an apparently somewhat hastily assembled union fife and drum corps that provided music to the marchers. And so they were making preparations to actually go up to New York the next day or to start the actual march the next day. So between Bristol and Trenton, they again stopped at every little town. They'd hold a rally Mother Jones would give speeches and would call for both support for the textile workers strike and then also just call for an end to child labor. So they finally made Trenton by the 11th, where they had another mass meeting and there was a lot of food and money that got donated in Trenton. And this was the point of no return. So they knew that they needed to make it or they needed enough provisions to make it all the way to New York from this point on or else they would have to go back to Philly. Yeah. But they figured out that they could make it to New York. So they made it, they marched out of Trenton that evening, made Princeton by the 12th, New Brunswick by the 13th. And they were also making, they were actually getting a lot of monetary donations and sending money back to the union. So they also sent word ahead to see if President Roosevelt would meet with them. And he said he might meet Mother Jones herself but he wouldn't meet with the entire army. and But they still formed up into a column and marched through Newark, New Jersey with Mother Jones at the head of the procession. So on the 23rd, they finally made it to New York City and requested permission for a parade. And then initially that got denied, but they like kept pressing. And then finally, by the evening of the 23rd, they got permission to have a parade through the city. So, 29th of July, Mother Jones and a delegation of five rep- or five children made it out to Sagamore Hill, which was Roosevelt's estate. Okay. And they there was like some actual belief that they might be able to push him on stuff and might be able to enact some child labor laws in part cuz he was an honorary member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. Uh, okay so they thought they could like use that as leverage okay the but when they got there roosevelt's secretary dismissed jones and the delegation saying that the president would not be meeting with them he failed to mention 
that the president was taking his own children out for an evening of recreation. So he couldn't At be bothered Island. to hear about other children oh. working 10 hour days. What? Cause he wow. was out playing with his kids. Wow. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. That's a hell. That's a hell of a classic classist remark there, Gabe. Yep. They did compromise with her, though, and said that she should write a letter to the president <laughs> and let him know what he'd ought to do about the plight of the mill children. And here's a souvenir of White House and a yep. Statue of Liberty cigarette lighter for the kids. Yep. So now they were faced with another problem, which was that the army, the labor squadron, was starting to get restless. So she... Stayed in New York, kept, like, raising funds. I wasn't able to find the exact end date as to when she actually left New York, but it seems that she spent most of the rest of the summer continuing to agitate to help raise funds and try and get people to recognize that, hey, maybe eight-year-olds shouldn't be in factories. While the March of the Mill Children itself did not end child labor, it did set the groundwork for the National Child Labor Committee, which then went on to agitate for an end to child labor. And it also did raise a lot of money for the strike. So it helped them to keep the fight up, both and play us out. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1971. At 2.51 a.m., Battalion 12 Chief Leo Najarian of Los Angeles heard that there had been a tunnel explosion. That February, a 6.5 earthquake had killed 65 people in the area. Now it seemed tragedy had struck again. Just the night before, Chief Najarian had been called out to the same address. The Lockheed Shipbuilding and Construction Company was digging a tunnel over a mile long for the Metropolitan Water District. Chief Najarian had been called out when four workers were injured due to a minor explosion. He had found that the workers at the site were not testing frequently enough for methane gas. One spark from a tool could touch off an explosion. Leaving instructions to test more frequently, he left and spent the next day worried. So when another explosion alarm came from the same address, he rushed to the scene. There he found the second explosion was much worse than the first. Workers were trapped five miles into the tunnel. Rescue workers attempted to reach the trapped miners through a vent shaft near their position. Paul Badgley, a miner at the scene, was part of four rescue attempts. He described the heartbreaking effort, stating, quote, the first time we went in there, I could hear the guys hollering for help. The third and fourth time, I couldn't hear them. It's a hell of a feeling not being able to help them when you hear them hollering. 17 workers lost their lives. In the aftermath of the tragedy, the Lockheed Company was put on trial and fined heavily for their negligence. California passed stricter mining and tunnel laws and established a state occupational safety and health administration. 19 Los Angeles firefighters were awarded the Medal of Valor for their bravery. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. The recent passing of singer, actor, and political activist and organizer Harry Belafonte is important in U.S. history in the struggle against segregation, racism, and war. Belafonte worked and collaborated with the ILWU. We talked with Clarence Thomas, retired ILWU Local 10, past secretary-treasurer, about the legacy of Harry Belafonte and the relevance today. I'm a Clarence Thomas. I'm a third-generation retired member of ILWU Local 10, past secretary-treasurer, the co-founder of the Mayor Worker March movement, and Declare Publishing, author of an anthology titled Mobilizing in Our Own Name, Mayor Worker March, and publisher of a recent release book that was uh, released on uh, May Day. It's called Cleopas Williams, My Life Story in the ILWU Local 10. And for those who may not be familiar with Cleopas, he was the Jackie Robinson of the ILWU. He was the first African-American to be elected president of a Longshore local in 1967. And um, that has particular significance with regards to the subject matter of today, Harry Belafonte and the links to the ILWU, because in 1967, uh, Dr. King addressed the members of the Local 10, held a press conference, and was made an honorary member. Paul Robeson was an extraordinary man in, in, in terms of his art, uh, his, his singing, acting, um, all-American football player, Phi Beta Kappa, spoke many, many languages, but he was a man who was committed to socialism, and, 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 and that's something that I don't think is 
is underscored enough. And he was an honorary member of the ILWU in 1943. In my um, a book about uh, Cleopas Williams, you know, one of Cleopas's first jobs when he migrated to the Bay Area in 1942 was to be hired at Moore Shipyard. And there's an iconic photo of Robeson singing to workers at Moore Shipyard in Oakland. And the workers are sitting down and he's standing up. And it's it, it's really quite an iconic photograph. It's been shown in many places. But I wasn't able to find out from Cleophas if he was at that particular uh, performance. But suffice it to say that he was employed there in 1942 when Robeson sang. Robeson had a, a, a very close relationship with labor. And I think that was one of the, the things that really clicked in my conversations with, with Harry Belafonte because he knew a great deal about the ILW, specifically about Bridges, and that had to do with his association with Robeson. I, I, if, you know, Robeson w w was a man who was, I guess, one of the first who we could really point to, and we could say that he used his art and his what is commonly referred to his platform as a celebrity to advance the causes of um, the working class and the oppressed. The first time I ever heard of the name Paul Robeson, which was at my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's home, and he was a long show worker, and he was the one that introduced me to whom uh, Paul Robeson was. And as an eight-year-old, I had a very difficult time trying to grasp why it was that I had not heard of this man. I mean, I was eight years old. I was reading the newspaper. I knew who I was familiar who, who Harry Bridges was because my grandfather talked about Harry Bridges and the, and the people who came over to the house, his house talked about him. I knew who Jackie Robinson was. I knew who Martin Luther King was. But I couldn't figure out why is it that someone who my grandfather held in such high esteem and who was uh, all of these famous things and I didn't know who he was. And so that was my first, um, I guess, introduction to um, how the system had, you know, blacklisted him and, and, and basically had written him out of history and uh, very effectively. And so... Uh, so there's a lesson to be learned from that. His commitment to the working class, in particular to workers, because Robeson believed that um, he could reach people, uh, if not by his words, then by his songs. And he saw a commonality with um, various folk music, and he and he was and he was able to draw a link between. Uh, African-American spirituals and folk music of, of Europe, uh, you know, Gaelic culture and uh, Welsh culture. And, and and he had, you know, sang in front of workers in, in, in various countries and um, even in China. And so when we talk about Harry Belafonte, we have to talk about Robeson, which we which we've done here. Because he was a mentor to Robeson, and I and I think that one of the things that we could say about Harry Belafonte was that he also was a create a courageous artist. Uh, he was a he was someone who spoke about his admiration for Robeson and how Robeson served as a role model for him in terms of how he thought 
artists should artists have a role to play in society and uh robeson talked about he said artists either are going to fight for freedom or they're going to fight for enslavement fight if you fight to be slaves you know you're going to either fight for slavery or against it and um he firmly believed that i thought it was more than ironic that his first hit uh the banana boat song what many of us know to be uh gale uh is a song about dock workers uh loading bananas and uh it's extraordinary and in that it's you know i had really never paid that much attention to it until you know many years uh, ago you know when i said oh he's talking about you know the dock workers and my father and my grandfather and my uncle uh they they, they loaded bananas and then when he talks about the tally man he's talking about the marine clerks who who basically count the cargo and make sure <laughs> you know and he talks about the tarantulas and talks about the various sizes of the of the bunches of bananas and you know a lot of longshore workers didn't like working bananas because of the issue of the of the spiders but this man um was um extraordinary in that regard and um there had been attempts to, to blacklist him too and and to hear harry uh bellapani talk about it he said that ed sullivan who's who's had a very popular television show the variety show in the 1950s and 60s and you know a lot of us you know watched that show because it was diverse you know you would see jugglers and and comedians and at the same time you would see people like paul ropes or you might see um you know nina simone or uh diana ross and the supreme they would all be on with this one show but what was interesting is that the fbi was uh basically trying to blacklist him because of his association with with robeson and also because of the fact that he was an activist and so paul describes how uh they tried the fbi was basically trying to keep him off of that show and apparently there was some conversation you know between uh, uh sullivan and the producers or whatever and they were trying to get him off the show but one of the things that was remarkable and, and you know sullivan was irish and paul uh, harry bellafanti pointed out to uh ed sullivan about the commonality of the struggles of the people of ireland and, and, and african-americans and that was rather extraordinary because ed sullivan put harry on the show and when you appeared on ed sullivan's show back in back in those days i mean that was your ticket to, to success because that brought you right into the american homes on sunday evenings he really was a revolutionary i mean how else can you describe a, a black man in hollywood who is able to not only support the civil rights movement in, in a meaningful way but he was also able to get some of the leading hollywood stars to come out and support the march on washington danny glover had mentioned that uh who was mentored by bellafonte that uh, harry always was trying to figure out how does his fame his fortune translate into building a movement and belafonte was a very wealthy man um and 
he used his his fortune and his fame um, in building a movement. He not only provided financial support to the SCLC, uh, but he also provided space for Dr. King to be able to get away from things and relax. My first meeting with Belafonte was on April 5th, 2003. He was the keynote speaker at the Stop the War War in Iraq, Stop the War on Us. After his speech and interview was over, Henry and I spoke with him. We welcomed him to the Bay Area, congratulated him on his speech, which was well-received by those in attendance. And then we immediately expressed his admiration for Harry Bridges and the ILWU. And he was well acquainted with his history, specifically the U.S. government attempt to have Bridges jailed and deported for being a red. There was this anti-communist witch hunt in the United States. Most people don't realize that the ILWU and the left-wing unions at that time actually had an organized campaign against segregation. And the Marine Cooks and Stewards, which was a left-wing union on the West Coast, actually forced the integration of ships. They were all white by telling the ship owners that they wouldn't sail unless there were black sailors on those ships. So I think when people think about why was there an anti-communist witch hunt, one of the reasons was the left-wing unions like the ILWU were saying, we're going to actually fight racism on the job. And Belafonte was acquainted with that history. And you're right, Steve, I think that it would be, we would be remiss if we did not point out that there was a time in this country, believe it or not, that if you were white and you believed in civil rights, you were either considered to be a communist or a communist sympathizer. One of the things I'd like to mention in this book that we publish about Cleophus Williams, this is his manuscript. One of the things that Cleophus talks about is that there were people who... Some people were allowed a credential to work, and other people were screened. And so sometimes there was no rhyme or reason for this, so it created a division amongst the rank and file. How is it that he was able to get clearance and I wasn't? You follow what I'm saying? And so the employers, because I think that one of the things that I've come to understand, this is why I published Cleopas's book, is that African-Americans in particular, who were not lefties as such, but who were militant trade unionists and who understood the importance of the anti-discrimination, anti-racism, the democratic and militant traditions of the ILWU, they supported those things. And they were also targeted, too just like someone who might have been a lefty or who might have been from Eastern Europe and was looked upon as being an alien who was bringing in Marxist Leninist philosophies to the trade union movement and all the rest of that. But those individuals were also targeted as well. And I think that, as a matter of fact, I was told, this through oral discussion, that people were asked questions when they were being interviewed by the government in some instances. They were asking questions such as, have you ever had a conversation with anyone who had, who had liberal views about race mixing? They were asking questions like that. Have you ever been to an event 
where, you know, where blacks and whites were mixing socially. That kind of and excuse me, but that, that, that was the degree in which, you know, and then, and like right now in Florida, Ron DeSantis is going to be running for president. And so I can't think of the young black woman, and she spoke at Biden's inauguration. And so she received quite a bit of acclaim and admiration for her speech. Do you know that her speech has been outlawed in Florida? We seem to be, history seems to be repeating itself right now. Work all night and I drink a rum. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Sure hope you do. Even better, if you like what you hear, please like it in your podcast app. Pass it along and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Special thanks this week to the Labor John, that's J-A-W-N, podcast out of Philadelphia, and Work Week Radio, based in San Francisco. You can find them both wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find them at laborradionetwork.org. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today, The Death of Mother Jones, arranged and performed by Young Sam James, and Deo, of course, by Harry Belafonte. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and... Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana.